Hey, Marcus. Yo. Do you like movies? Yes, I do. Hey, Dan. Do you yeah. like movies? Some of them. <laughs> That's one of the most honest answers we've probably had. You know, we start every episode with me asking people if they like movies. And sometimes people have a, a cheeky answer or sometimes, you know, people have a very passionate answer. But... I Sometimes. hate to say it, but what I said is accurate. Like in my old age, it's really hard for me to sit through a movie if I just really don't like the filmmaking. That's true. I mean, and that will lead us to some questions that I believe both of us, both Marcus and I have oh, for yeah. you. So this is Zebras in America podcast, film podcast, recording live from quarantine. If you're listening from the future, I hope there's a future. And if you're living in present... Be safe, wear a mask, and don't be a jerk. This mm -hmm. is our first episode of 2021, and I and um, Marcus, would you like to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. Um, if you all who are listening, <clears throat> you listened to our last ep episode, uh, the movie 14 ended up on both Scott and ours, uh, Scott and I's best of 2020 um, list. And if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to the previous episode because it's really good. It's a really long one. And, you know, I thought that was really cool because, like, I guess over eight years ago, uh, a, a buddy of mine, Dave Davidson of TO Film Review, who actually, he got a shout out in the previous episode as well. He, he would come to visit New York once a year, and we met up at Anthology Film Archives to see, uh, I believe it was Import Export, and he oh, was yeah. waiting outside for me. And uh, I got there, I saw Dave, and then Dave introduced me to this uh, filmmaker, um, Dan Sallett. And it was really cool because ever since that moment, uh, I believe it was late 2012, early 2013, The Unspeakable Act, I think, had just become available. And then from that moment, for the next eight or so years, I would just bump into Dan all the time. We ended up following each other on Twitter and like at the New York Film Festival, at the Museum of the Moving Image, at BAM, like over these years, like in various different boroughs of New York City, all the different repertory <laughs> theaters, we'd always run into each other, say hi, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of his films. I'm also a fan of him. He's a great follow on Twitter. And he's one of the few filmmakers who, you know, lets his opinions be known about other films. He's, he's very passionate. He has, he has great film writing, great film opinions. And if, if you follow him on Twitter, you know, he loves movies so much, he'll give you his itinerary for the day sometimes. Like, <laughs> what theater he'll be at, like, what time, you know, so... Um, back in yeah. the days of theaters. Exactly. Ba back in the day. Ba back in the day, which is it's crazy to say. But so, yeah, we're, we're um, thanks in part to uh, Scott Tafoya, who I reached out to. And I was like, hey, do you think Dan would do our podcast? And he was like, yeah, sure. Ask him. And uh, so we got Dan, director of 14, director of uh, The Unspeakable Act, uh, on our show to talk to talk about his latest film, 14 movies in general. So, uh, Dan, welcome to Zebras. It's great thank to have you. Thank you very much. Of course. Yeah. Um, Dan. One, I really like your website of your own website of film criticism, saladfavorites.wordpress.com. Salad uh, uh. uh, what I really like is that I was looking at, you know, your list of 2020 films. I was like, I haven't seen most of these. And <laughs> that really excites me. And I don't, I don't know if you're aware, but I listed... 14 is my favorite film of 2020. Oh, I didn't. That's great. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons why I was pretty hyped to, ha to have you on here. I think it's going to be hard for me to talk about this movie 
without talking about some spoilers. So if you if if the listener hasn't seen the movie Fourteen, um, you can you can rent it on on grasshopperfilm.com through their projector app, and you can I think you can rent it for under five bucks, and I really highly suggest it. Yeah, you can rent yeah, it. Yeah, stop listening right now, actually, if you haven't seen it yet, because the spoilers will be real spoilers. Yeah, I, I <laughs> what really grabbed me about the film, Dan, um, to talk about that, I have to talk about things that that happened towards the end of the film. Yeah. So I, I just, I really can't. Sometimes you can talk about movies without spoilers. Yeah. But your film, your film broke me, though... Honestly, I was already broken already. Well, no, I'm not a broken person. <laughs> but but to, to to paraphrase this film that I somehow come to a lot of times, the movie with Gretchen Maul and the, the actor that played Stifler, who for some reason I'm drawing a blank. Oh, Sean William Scott. Yeah, Sean William Scott was in a very bizarre movie with Gretchen Maul about this dude who tries to become a comedian but has some learning issues a uh, train wrecks my life as an idiot uh very strange necessarily recommended but he 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 interacts with it with a character who says i'm not broken i'm bent huh. so i well, like to think of myself as i'm bent not broken but know, it seems like that's a real you'd be that would be like an, a distinction not to be broken i think we're all pretty Broken, although you know, I guess bent versus broken hasn't really been adequately defined. But I kind of tend to subscribe to the Freudian view that we're all like really messed up. Oh, we're all really messed up. I'm, I'm more of a Jungian, but um, I've I also study a lot of Frankel, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm in and out. But you know, I'm my I do I my. Grads, I went to my bachelor's was at Brooklyn College for psychology, and I got my master's in social work, and I work on movies. So I have different. I I do like the different. My approaches. father was deep into Jung when I was growing up, and I was like raised with that almost. I used to be scolded in like Jungian terms, but when I got when I got old enough to read this stuff for myself, I found I was kind of a Freudian after all. So. That's also interesting because, like, often when it comes to film theory, people um, cite, as far as the analysts, Lacan or Fans Fanon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of Freud has been questioned, but he, he he's certainly revolutionary. And I'm, I'm actually reading The Wretched of the Earth by Fans Fanon right now again. But this is all, this is all, a tr- this is all to say that if you go to grasshopperfilm.com, you can rent 14 for 4.99 and then after you have, you can come back here. Brooklyn uh, College made an appearance in one of my movies, you know. I don't know if you uh, saw the unspeakable act, but it did. Oh, love it. Yeah. It, it another film, another film co-starring uh, 14 star uh, Tally Metal. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's on my list. I I'm so forgive me. I I didn't know a lot of your films before I had seen fourteen. No forgiveness this, is required. You're not the only one who doesn't. 
And like last minute, as I'm putting together my list for 2020, Marcus was like, I really think you should check out the movie 14. So I only saw it recently. Oh, great. Yeah, so, so 14 follows a friendship for 10 years. Uh, starring uh, Tally Maydell and Norma Cooling as Cooling? Culling? Cooling. Cooling. Um, I, I think it's Tally Maydell and Norma Cooling. And actually, I'm Dan Salit, just in case you want to. Oh, oh, I've been really saying sorry. your name wrong this whole time. Sorry. Yeah. Man. So Norma Salit. was actually the first correct pronunciation. And... Oh. I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> That's I, okay. I, that's, I, I was not really. Dan Salit, I've. I've only read these names, so I haven't said. Yeah, them out of course, loud. of course. Someone once told me that it was like a that we shouldn't criticize people if they pronounce words incorrectly because that means that they got them through reading. Yes, and I always say that pronunciation is a form of oppression, but that's <laughs> that goes more with my Fanonian readings, and <laughs> you know, who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when I say what's up, fat lip, and I say Norma Cooling? That's just a little. Little rap line, but you know, you tell the story about two friends over the course of ten years, childhood best friends, as they grow apart and change, and you you don't show every single important part in their life. You sort of give people the breaks in between the big parts, and you have um. Mara, who is just getting by, figuring out how to navigate the world. And then you have her friend, Joe, who is clearly very talented, very witty, where any room she goes to is the star of the show, but struggles. And throughout the, this film, and the film's titled 14, because they've known each other since they were 14 or so, something like that. They've known is each that, other actually a little earlier, earlier than that. 14 but is when things got hard for her. 14 is yeah. Norma, Norma talks at one point, or Joe talks at one point about how her life started falling apart when she was 14 and yeah. she doesn't understand why. Yeah, because later on in the film, or earlier, no, later when she has her daughter, she tells of when they first met, like when yeah. she first moved to that's, school. That's and... true. I'm sorry. So, we good. Um,. So the reason why this film was really haunted me is my best friend passed away this year. Mm. Well, last year, in 2020. And we had been friends since childhood, my childhood best friend. And I was sort of really taken away with how very similar our roles were. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm more, I think I'm more of, of, I think I'm, I'm a Joe Mara combo, but I, in this, in this story, I was Mara and my friend was Joe. Mm. And the reason why I was so moved by the the spaces between of when you can tell that Joe is struggling and you find these stories out through her relationships that aren't quite working or you know her new friends or 
or her quote-unquote erratic behavior or the fact that she's always in a crisis. Yeah. And there are people that that are always in a crisis and they say, oh, you know, I don't know. It's got, I don't know why something's always going on, but certain people that, that can't get their things together. And that was your and, friend, a lot of crisis? Yeah, yeah. My friend was in a lot of crisis and, and was the star of every room and... You know, things are a little bit different, right? But but it hit home so hard, dude. And and that's why I appreciate it, because it wasn't this, like, sensationalistic tale of two friends growing apart. I think there's a kind of a... A lot of people talk about the film as a film about friendship or a film about mental illness, and I always think of it... I mean, it is, I guess, but I always think of it as a film about uh, love and loss more than anything, mm-hmm. you know? I think that Mara, you know, just loves Joe desperately. And the fact that she, most of the film, you can't even tell if she likes Joe, uh, that's, to me, that's just, you know, that's the filmmaking. That's Pila coming in there, you know, the counterpoint. But the, the, the fact is Mara, Mara loves her desperately with this child's love and yeah. can't can't stop the loss so you know, that's where the film's center is for me and I totally felt that too because like the the friendships that are that are record breaking the friendships of legend the friendships that really make a life worth living are our love relationships they're not they're not necessarily sexual relationships or sensual mm. relationships mm. but they're romantic they're powerful and they're deeply loving and and the way that that Mara is able to to sort of it's all it's sort of just like oh well this is my day this is my day that I have to cancel now to be there for you or this is what I'm doing, matter-of-factly. Like, oh, this is, you know, yeah. Joe continues to put Mara into situations that are uncomfortable for Mara, and Mara continues to 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 be there for her. Yeah, it's a, it's. I mean, it's a love story where mm-hmm. the 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 person who loves doesn't really show it that much. Most of the time, shows irritation, uh, discomfort. She has to back away from the person. She has to build a life without her. So that counterpoint between the feelings underneath the surface, which you know come out enough that I think they're spotable, and yeah. and the surface, which is mundane and even contrapuntal to to the feelings, that's like the attraction of the movie to me. It is for me too, and like yeah, the the. So you say pee a lot, a lot. Um... I do say a lot. So, yeah, I I discovered P a lot in my late twenties, and I do see the inspiration. I think the, your film is is its own film, stands on its own. But when you when you tell me that it's that you're inspired by the work of P a lot, and I'm thinking about Anu Samor or my favorite film about Van Gogh, mm-hmm. or you know, was it We Will Never Grow Old Together? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Pila is like someone that I 
had around and loved a lot of my life, but I don't think he sank in uh, deep until sometime in the last couple decades. I know when I was making Honeymoon back in like 1996, I was actively thinking of Pila and actually trying to capture some of the feeling. And I think it was superficial at that point. But at some point he sank in with me and now I feel like he's just part of the texture. And the thing that really is most, you know, Pila like about this movie, I think is not just the, not just the time jumps, which are, you know, obviously right out of Ad Nos Amor, but, no. but this principle of Pila that, you know, that the way to make life seem real is to just take a, take a, you know, snips and snails and puppy dog tails and throw them all together randomly. And mm. then you'll get something that feels real, that doesn't feel governed by the rules of fiction. It doesn't feel streamlined and he he does it so so he has his own like aversions which are not the same as my aversions but i think that the principles are the same and the fact that this is a film about a person who loves someone else desperately where you don't see it that much that's a the way peel i would probably do it arrive at it somehow and b i think gives you a kind of a feeling that comes out as realism, comes out as something recognizable. Well, yeah, it feels like a very real movie. It, it, it feels like it's not, it's not a documentary, obviously, but I like the way that you tell the story in a very matter-of-fact way. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the conversations feel like real conversations. They don't feel over, overly dramatized. The shots don't feel in your face there's there's a nuance to it and you're here yeah, you're just able to see at least for me the pain and the struggle and the subtext of what is happening in this friendship and uh you know I, i'm curious how, how what what how tell me about the process of making this movie why you made this movie you know did this come from any sort kernel of truth? Not that we need truth to make beautiful art, but I came from. There were some people in my life who suggested some of the scenes, and you know, not necessarily only one. Um, sure. The I mean, wh where the film started was with my desire to make film with Tally, and with another actress who did not wind up playing the role of Joe. So I was like. Like every other project that I've come up with has basically been, you know, written for the people I made the last project with. I, I keep like striving towards this goal where I know the actors before I write. And then like life gives you a reset and you start all over again and cast from scratch. And then the next one I try to like build on it. So this was one of those films where I was, I was trying to build on people, you know, I really wanted to make a film with Tally. And um, the, the, the story itself just kind of came together in bits and pieces. Um, I knew it was a movie when I had the ending. The ending came first when I thought of, mm. you know, the, 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 the story to the child, the fairy tale about Joe that she tells to her child, and then about the child, you know, realizing who it is that's in the casket. Yeah. Um, that was the first thing. And the day that I thought of that, great I scene, think, by the way, yeah, <coughs> sorry to cut you off, but 
it was my birthday, I think, in 2012, and I that was like the year that Unspeakable Act was released, and Tally came to my birthday party, and I think I told her that night, I think I have the movie. That was right after I thought of that. The rest I kind of filled in in bits and pieces. You know, I, mm. I wanted I wanted to get the uh, I wanted to get that big breakdown scene in there from the mother and the whore, more or less. You know that. that might not be a surprise that, that I was uh, thinking of Francoise Lebrun's big, uh, big scene in The Mother and the Whore when Joe uh, collapses against the wall and pours everything out. Mm. Um, but that, I, w- I wanted to tick that off, and I just kind of wove the story together around this, uh, you know, these kind of basic ideas of this life that was trickling down the drain and, and the survivor who was like, had to stand there and mourn it after it was gone. Oof. Yeah. So yeah, just in again for the people that are listening to this that haven't seen the movie, which I don't understand if you've gotten this far. But yeah, go away if you haven't seen the movie. This is not good. But yeah, <laughs> the film the film is like these connected vignettes of these characters, and it it starts at a point where where the where Mar and Joe are are the sorry um the two main characters are like at an impasse in their young life and then you know as things get harder and you know boundaries are created because if you have a, when you have friends that are challenging you love them very much but maybe what they demand is more than you can give. You might have to give a little more space than you want to, even though you want to be around these people. And, you know, and you might wind up drifting away altogether, which is kind of happening at the end of the movie. You see these, you see these gaps. Mara has a child. When you have a child, you can't afford to like screw around with every, every other thing that you've been doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even with, like like in the in the pandemic and like moving away and just like being more involved in my job and with my partner it's just much harder to be there for people that make it a little more difficult to be there for and yet you know there i mean whether you do it or whether you don't do it it's like circumstances a lot of things going on and what i but what I, i chose to like you know I mean, it's a kind of a capital R romantic kind of gesture in a way mm. that I think of this film as being about this great love. And, yes. you know, it, it pours out at one point and then it quickly gets hidden. And I think it will be hidden mostly in her life. Life will go on. Every so often, Mara will think about Joe, will feel these things. Uh, it's never going to go away. And also, life won't let you wallow in it, you know, unless you want to wallow. And that, that's not Mara, really. Sure. So, so she'll pick well, it Mara up. Can't, Mara can't wallow she can't, in it. She, she can't wallow. A, she has a child, right? Yeah. So, but even if she didn't get, have a child. But even before, I, you know, I was going to say even before, it's like yeah. she had other responsibilities. Uh, one, she has her own life and she's romantically involved and she's mm-hmm. kind of dating around. But she's also a teacher and she's also a tutor. Like life like she has her own life you know she writes you know yeah yeah and and it's not really her to like wallow in it you know she's and she won't but the pain will never go away completely it'll it'll be there once in a while she'll revisit that pain you know and when when joe you know when joe passes away and 
Mars finds out in a in a difficult way and she finally has her breakdown about it mm-hmm. I was I was crying man uh, yeah that was a the whole film was kind of setting that up it was really sure. kind of pleasant to me the way it worked out script wise because um, you got to see you know the film has basically nine uh, movements in time you know the, the maybe ten if you count one of them being sort of broken up but nine movements in time and so you got to see eight of these movements before you hear the story that sets yeah. up that ending you know before you hear the fairy tale about the about the school lunch and the chair pulled out from under the uh, the persecutor that that fairy tale wasn't you know you got to see like eight ninths of the movie before that pops up so i, I kind of like that script writing uh outcome i should say rather than strategy i kind of like the fact that this this kind of important thing doesn't really happen until near the end and then it sets up something else so yeah and yeah again obviously i'm connecting to the movie because of the the year i've had but it's also a very good movie but i also you know my partner didn't really know the origin story of how i became friends with my best friend until i was practicing my eulogy with her mm-hmm. because that's something that you might do when when yeah. writing a eulogy and I, let me tell you uh, a funeral in the in the time of covid is is also challenging huh so it was it was outside and we wore masks and so, and um so her death was just in the last couple months in the last year yeah his his his, his death oh, was, his, yeah, was yeah. this summer mm-hmm. and uh I don't talk about it a lot on the podcast and I just cuz it's it's painful and I like to keep a little bit of my life private, yeah. but I didn't really think I could talk about why this film was was so profound for me without talking about it. Yeah, I mean, the fact is something like that feels like a whole world. It feels big enough to be a whole world. You know, your relationship with one person and the loss of that person feels like something like bottomless and endless. And yet nine-tenths or more of our lives are spent doing podcasts or whatever, you know, like other things. That's the lesson of Pila that I referred to. That's like that counterpoint between, you know, what we feel is really important and what we do on a minute-by-minute basis, how, so, how we react. So that actually brings me to one of the things, I, you know, I wanted to bring up. I, you know, <clears throat> I didn't even think about Maurice Pila until you and you you mentioned him because like the same use of time that the 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 lack of you know cutting just letting the camera go like when i was watching this film you know i was thinking of not just in general but specific like chantal ackerman films yeah. like like rendezvous with anna like the whole scene midpoint in the movie where she goes to visit joe and she's on what i guess what looks like the metro north train yeah. is like an entire it, it's like no, no break you watch the train arrive you watch people get off and you watch a train take off and like the whole, you know, it's, it's like a four or five minute scene of that. And it really, you know, it, you know, it's intentional, but you know, this is just how my mind works, but it totally reminded me of like the very opening scene of rendezvous with Anna 
you know, where it's like the train gets into the station, everyone gets off, you know, uh, she's the, Anna's the last woman there, and then she walks down the street, and at no point does the camera break, you know what I mean? Like, it, it just kind of reminded me of that, which kind of uh-huh. also goes back to, like, Brisson, you know, who's kind of one of the, not I, I can't say inventor, but a pioneer of that style as well. So there were just so many, well, not so many, but like a, a handful of filmmakers that I was reminded of. I'd forgotten you know, when, that when, when, scene when, when, from Rendezvous with Anna and uh, didn't make the association, but yeah. of course... That... It's shot completely different, like yeah. for those who, who aren't familiar with either movie, but it still is, it, it, it just, it, it gave me a similar vibe. And then also, you know, yeah, even too, um, Even like, uh, like oh. Rayon Vert by uh-huh. uh, Eric Romer. Oh, definitely a, Romer. Yeah. Sure. Which is a per, has become a personal top movie for me. Yeah. Because as I get older and I have to renegotiate who I am, you know, I used to be the life of the party. I used to be extroverted and I'm not anymore. Mm. And I very That's much... That's true. Relate. I was kind of that way too, more so like in high school. I think college kind of changed that. I'm just a little quieter in general. Yeah. So That's like, funny you mentioned that. Yeah. Like these sort of characters that are just like comfortable with what with with their station even if it's to be a little more subdued is something that i i really relate to that is also sometimes something we don't see as much in american cinema but i think that's just more like how we're presented american cinema because there's a lot of american films that american people aren't seeing yeah for sure there's a there's a lot of interesting uh, stuff going on right now that with, with the american independence scene yeah, Romare has some... like always been like you know the first the first you know person that made me want to make films like him you know he wasn't the first filmmaker i loved but as soon as i saw Romare, i thought that was that style kind of clicked with me even when i was like an undergraduate taking a film class like one of the one of the kids in the class used to call me Eric Romare, you know, because he couldn't remember my name, and I was already on that tip. <laughs> nice. That's interesting, yeah, because I just, I just feel it, even though your films are expressively and perfectly yourself. I don't feel like I'm watching another person's movie, but when you tell me these, these things, I'm like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Which, which leads me to, like, I guess two or three questions, because we were talking about American independent cinema. Like, what are, what are some recent things you've really enjoyed? And then I'd also like to hear a little bit about, about your, your career, because you've been working, you've been working for, for a while. Yeah. And, and, and I did want to jump in, too. Like, you know, the question, you know, that Scott asked, it's like, what are you into? I guess to some folks, that would sound like, such a general question, but, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, you're someone who, like, you know, you essentially kind of chronicle film in, in, in your own way. So I think, Dan, in your specific case, I think that is kind of like a really curious, important question for, for someone like you, because I feel like the more people make films, the less they give their opinions about them, the less they go see films. And, and you're kind of one of the, at least in my experience, That's true, and you're one of those people seen... who, who kind of breaks who kind of breaks that uh, stereotype. You seem like 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 a film critic as well, and like you seem very interested in the craft. You're and yeah, I enjoy reading what you have to say, which is which is why I've asked. Yeah, I I I've always been kind of amazed that like some people leave it behind a little bit when they start 
making movies. I've probably never made movies enough or, you know, in a, I never made movies in a 24-7, 365 way. So maybe I have time to just keep it going. But the new wave, you know, the new La Vague set the template for the people who were not planning to, to, to leave it behind. And that's cropped up every so often uh, in film history, the, those kind of enclaves of, of people that came from a, a point, place where they appreciated other movies and then went to do it themselves. It's interesting, like, I, I, I talk about, talk about PLI, I talked about Romero, and of course I'm actually thinking of them, I'm taking stuff from them. But, and I, I don't worry about whether or not it's going to look like them or like me. You can't afford to think that way. You know, you've just got to hope that your personality is in there enough to, to make the film, you know, cohere around, around that or around something that looks like a personality. Hmm. Um, it, it, there's a certain, you know, there might be some filmmakers that imitate so much that they don't quite achieve their own personality, but there, there, there are. Oh, yeah, I mean, we don't have lot. to name names, but 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 but, but, but there are plenty, and, and you can almost trace, and you can trace those direct one or many directors. You know, you could trace them directly to who who they borrowed, copy, whatever word you want to use. And you can never be a hundred percent sure that you yourself, me myself, is not one of them. You know, because when you're in the inside. Sure. You can't tell. It's like this big existential fate bet, you know? You, sure. You're gambling on the fact that you are a filmmaker like the other filmmakers, you know, and that you have a filmmaking personality like the others. But you can never really, you know, you can never achieve a, a, any kind of perspective on that. So it's just like this. Yeah. And even other people's acclaim or disdain does not tell the story. So basically it's just this lifelong existentialist kind of trap you're in where you you take this big existential gamble that you're a filmmaker and you never really get to find out whatever that's oh. a, that's life <laughs> <laughs> that's an awesome answer but, but so what who i guess maybe past or present future who like what scott was was saying who uh lately yeah yeah, yeah. Um, oh geez, I've been seeing a lot of like this pandemic has been kind of like fun in terms of film. Stuff I, I, I agree. I, I agree. I, again, I'm sorry I don't want to cut you off, but it's like you. I I hear very few people say that, and that that was kind of once like spring started, it was kind of like oh I'm gonna stream every movie possible, maybe directly from you know some of these repertory mm-hmm. theater sites, so I could give you know so I could right. donate whatever kind of money I came to them. And I, I, you know, I was unemployed for about five and a half months, so it's like I have all this time on my hands. So it's like, why not take 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 advantage mm-hmm. of it? But anyway, sorry. Unemployment is a double-edged sword, there, of course, in that you can't throw the money around as easily. I kept my good point. I, I've been working from home the whole time, so I didn't yeah. have a, a reduction of income. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, when it started out, I hadn't really, uh, I hadn't really gotten hip to the fact that a lot of this stuff was going to go online, and I just thought to myself. I have this huge backlog of the films I most want to see in the world sitting on my hard disk, fan subtitled by some wonderful person that I'll never meet. And mm. I usually don't get to them because I'm going to theaters all the time. Right. So I just started digging into that and uh, had a, a really, some really good stuff I saw this summer. I, mm. I made it a point of, uh, of completing uh, the, my exploration of... Uh, the uh, Iranian 
German director Sorab Shahid Sales, who I now feel really convinced is one of the greats. Uh, and he only made like oh, 13 wow. or so films, and I had seen some, but I made sure that I saw all of them that have English subtitles, which I think is all of them except for one documentary, maybe, and some sh early shorts. I'm sorry, what's the name of this director Sohrab again? Sohrab Shahid Sales. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. S-A-L-E-S-S uh, -S 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 is his last name. Yes. S-A-L-E-S-S. -S. Have you seen any of these? I, I haven't, no. An amazing filmmaker. He made a few films in Iran before the revolution. Um, skedaddled before, several years before the revolution, actually. It was in Germany by, I think, 76. He made a movie there. Uh, 75 continued making films in Germany never went back uh, his last film was in the late 90s he died he did lived in Chicago at the end of his life he died kind of young with a gap at the end of his life between his last film and his death huh. um, but when you watch the movies you don't get a feeling of a hard luck life uh, to tell you the truth you get a very philosophical sense of a guy who uh, who had a he was part of that like post new wave minimalist uh, movement that Chantal Ackerman was part of. He was also clearly a Chekhovian, somebody who really liked a certain style of quiet uh, narrative that it implied more than it told. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and the films are out there, but not necessarily all in great shape. But some nice people have put subtitles on them. This is something that I don't think enough people realize about the world, that nine-tenths of the films you really want to see are not commercially exploitable and have not been made available to audiences who don't speak the, the, the original language of the film. And the Internet has made it possible for people to cluster in these weird places and actually create their own subtitles. And that... yeah, that's a really good point. We have a, both Scott and I have a, have a close friend who's who's very uh, shout out to Carlo, who's very much in in, in, in into that, and, and one of those folks who kind of yeah. had it up in for him. There's a lot of stuff that like we we, we wouldn't have seen, I mean, straight... heard about, but just wouldn't have had a chance to see. And and I always go back to like as someone now, wow, year eleven of of the Toronto Film Festival. Mm -hmm. It's like I think about movies randomly like i'll just be like oh 2011 like oh whatever happened to that japanese movie and then you look it up and it's just like it didn't even get released in its own country yeah. but <laughs> i remember like thinking oh this is such a good movie and no one will ever hear about it or like some like small 80 minute long me mexican film that like will never get any kind of a release and mm -hmm. to some degree you feel for like two minutes it's like oh well hey i saw it but then it's also like i'm big i, I like to talk about movies so it's kind of like oh I have no one to talk about with. I have no one to talk to about, about this movie. Well, you here's know? the other interesting thing about modernity, besides the fact that the internet has gathered people in these small kind of uh, you know collections, big enough yeah. to big enough to achieve critical mass and generate fan subtitles, but also fan subtitles are a godsend. They're amazing. It's like a, it's a it's a revolution. It means that you know before I die, I will now see a certain percentage of those films I thought I would never see. Sure. A, a non, a, a not insignificant percentage. But the, what I was going to say was that another thing that technology and the internet has done is that we now have access to like clips and trailers of almost every movie 
Um, mm. If your sensibility is sure. such that you can tune in a little bit on what you like on the basis of a small bit of a movie, which I feel like mine is somewhat, then we can now bypass the whole taste-making um, mm -hmm. industrial mm -hmm. complex, which never worked all that great for me. And I feel as if I've been like seeing better films in the last 10, 15 years, since I can actually go online, see a little piece of the movie, even a, even a trailer. I mean, you can tell when you can tell when the trailer is manipulating the material, you know, to to a horrible extent. But but very often you could find a little piece of the film and, and make your own decision. It, it has definitely upped my uh, percentage of of and, good results. And this is an interesting thing because I really love. Like, rap music is my favorite genre of music. I grew up listening to it. I, I read so much about it. I have out-of-print magazines strewn around the house. Mm -hmm. But reviews were my, always my least favorite part of the magazine. Yeah, I, love like... the, I love the long-form like experience of understanding the art. I love reading where people's experience of it. Yeah, good point. And I love reading like good critics or good writers explain their love of something or what they love about it. But yeah, I do find a lot of movie reviews and specific and particularly music reviews to be really hard to parse out because because we're all you're describing me how something sounds and it almost never sounds that way. We're all so different from each other and our taste. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if we have, you know, are the sort of like, kind of like, you know, a stubborn person who is, who hangs on to something until they have a taste, it's usually going to be different from everybody else's. And at a certain point, I mean, it's not even a diss on critics or on film. I'm not, I'm not dissing critics. Yeah. I'm yeah. Saying. Yeah. But it's not, it's not you. It's not us. It's not the same this gap between people is kind of uh, slightly bridgeable, but it's not a it's not a it's not a piece of cake. When I started watching movies, I um I felt lucky because I was really uh, after a year I got into Andrew Saris, who I felt like I could use, uh, and he like led me to places where I wouldn't have gone otherwise. So that was like a really good critical experience. And after Saris, uh, you know, changed enough that I started started being able to use him less i i kind of to some extent felt that jay hoberman was somebody that took me places but it's a long yes. it's a long time since i've i've felt that the critics that i like even that i admire and think are smart it's a long time since i felt like it was a wise thing to follow their tastes in 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 terms of what i select what i choose to watch well, did you always look at... Because I always feel like... I mean, let me back up. Certain... Plenty of people would follow someone's taste. But at the same time, I was always someone who, like, even if it was a critic I liked, just, like, I would read what they re wrote many times before I would see the movie mm -hmm. just to go in to see it more, almost. Like, were, yeah. were you ever, like, like into that? Because I never... I've, I've, I'm very director-oriented, so even if I have a feeling, ah, I like this director... I don't think this movie is going to be good, but like I, I'll still go see it regardless. Yeah. It doesn't matter who. Well, I'm like you know. that too, and that's kind of, 
I don't know if you want to say that is a tourism because a tourism is this tricky thing that means something different to everybody. Sure. But this kind of sense that the texture of the film contains a person, uh, you know, is, is kind of important to me also. And I think that's why watching clips and trailers works well for me because I fancy myself anyway. You know, this might, it might be inaccurate and it might sound arrogant, but I fancy myself as being uh, that being tuned into the texture of the film enough where I feel like a part can stand for the whole and that, you know, just a few seconds, the way the actors talk, the way the camera is, the, the gestalt of the thing, all that stuff together should, can tell me something about whether I'll like the film or not. It's not always true, but yeah, I think sure. I've got a much higher hit rate with the actual experience than I do with anybody else's opinion. No, just on the other person's opinion but it works better for me to have something to go on myself. Which is funny for me. I don't watch movie trailers. A lot of people don't. A lot of people actually really don't want that degree of spoilage or that degree of... And I understand, but it's it's a it, it's a path to me for finding movies that I wouldn't find otherwise. And I, I feel just... as if my hit read is much better and I now can discover movies and share mm. them with other people... Whereas when I was a kid, I was discovering movies that other people had recommended to me. Well, I just trust if I like a filmmaker and they make a new movie, I'm going to watch it. Yeah, me too. If, if I read about something and it sounds interesting, I'll watch it. Um, I'll do that I, sometimes, but that doesn't always work as well for me as the first category that you named. Yeah, no, no question. And my friends will say, hey, like I didn't know what 14 was about and I went to see it. Yeah. And if I had watched the trailer, I'd probably be like, I can't watch this right now. <laughs> this huh? is too soon. Good, I'm this glad, is too I'm glad that home, worked out. You know? And I also, you know, they're, not all streaming sites are, are created equal. and But, you know, movie and Fandor and Ovid, they have really pretty solid aggregation and have a lot of cool stuff. So if I see some random stuff there, I'll be like, in the days of no record stores and no movie store, like DVD rental mm -hmm. stores, there's no accidentally finding something as much. <laughs> like, some, like someone ran, I've said this before, but someone randomly putting a record wrongly alphabetized and you see it and you're like, oh, this looks cool. For every good accident, though, I tend to, I tend to have a number of bad accidents. And sure. you know, Marcus was talking about Toronto. He and I have both, like, I'm sure, done the, done the tiffing thing of like before you go, you, 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 know, you try to find 50 films that will fit in your 50 film pass yep. that are the 50, yep. the 50 you most want to see and arrange your schedule accordingly, which yeah. means like 10 killer days, but it's fun. And I started doing this in 1999, 2000, which is before the advent of a lot of clips and trailers being available on the internet. And really, I have to say, I would kill myself, I'd read reviews, I'd make decisions about what I wanted to see. And then years later, I would have seen a lot of the other films also, because they come out. And I can't honestly say that all that work that I did from reading like trade papers and stuff, reading Variety and Hollywood Reporter or whoever had seen the movie already, I can't honestly say that it was helping me get to a better hit rate than if I just took a blind grab 
which is interesting. Oh. That's something that I wouldn't oh, have man. necessarily thought about the world, but I think I demonstrated that to myself. And now it's just so it's so funny you saying that because the older I get, I mean my my TIFF going and and well no again New York Film Festival is more showcase, but like with TIFF. Me going it it like from my late twenties through I'm I'm almost forty now, so it's like yeah exactly the first few years I thought it was the coolest thing ever, but the last three four years I went to TIFF it was like I'm just gonna go off of directors I love maybe do a couple of random like pop in and and, and surprise myself and then like explore Toronto, <laughs> um because I remember the first two years that I went to TIFF you didn't see I, I loved it and someone was just like. Oh, you must really love the city of Toronto. And then I was like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess I didn't. I guess I walked back and forth between the Scotiabank Theater and the Tiff Bell Lightbox, <laughs> and occasionally, I think it's called what is it called, the Ryerson Theater, whichever. Were you but ever it was going that... during the days when it was uptown, <clears throat> yeah. when it was up at the Bloor and Young uh, intersection, where the theaters were like the Varsity and the Cumberland and the Uptown, or was that before your time? It might have been before my time. Altogether, there were four screens that are playing. It's, it's the Tiff Bell Lightbox, the Scotiabank Theater, the Ryerson Theater, and then up the corner, up the street and around the corner from Ryerson, it, it, it was like a local university. Um, uh-huh. well, there, it, oh, it, it was. The, I, I should know because the, the bed and breakfast that I've stayed with many, it, it was on Young Street. Um, um, yeah, what's, I'm trying to think what's on Young, Young Street, that, what theater is still there. The Uptown used to be on Young. But, yeah. But but yeah, and now and it's just kind of like oh, I didn't even you know the you know se- second city Toronto is right there like all these cool re- it's Toronto like there's all this shit to do and the first two years I went there I didn't even I pay attention to the city. Fun time so in now my life like, when I for some reason in 2005 I decided to stop eating sweets because I was gaining too much weight and mm-hmm. I substituted uh, coffee for sweets and I got deep into espresso and it was right the timing was perfect because. The third nice, wave, the nice. third wave was starting to happen, and I totally—it's not really like like me to spend that much time on something like coffee. But I spent a lot of time, and I hung out with baristas, and I would visit shops. And Toronto got sucked into that, so I would go to Toronto, and between movies, I'd hop on a, I'd hop on a streetcar and go out to, uh, um, you know, places all all the way on the other side of town, and get a, get a shot of espresso and talk to the baristas there who knew the baristas in New York and would tell me about other places. That was like a cool way of discovering a town. If you have something like that, which is like networked and a scene, it yeah. kind of like, that was like my kind of a way of exploring more of Toronto. Having little things to be passionate about. Uh, what's your favorite region for coffee? I'm, I am a sucker for just about anything from Ethiopia. Yeah, Ethiopia's got two different, two completely different styles in my mind. I mean, maybe more. I'm, t- I'm, I'm, I might be talking trash here, but Ethiopia has these kind of yoga chefs, which are really kind of citrusy. I love yoga chefs and nano chiles and. Um, but then yeah. there's the other kind of Ethiopian that's berry flavored, and there's a couple different of them. But the Baloya, which is a strong kind of blueberry blackberry flavor. And it comes around every couple of years. It's the, it's the coffee. It's the espresso I dream of. It's the Baloya. I keep waiting for another recrudescence of, of that taste. And uh, nowadays, the scene has disintegrated. And I might not even know if that if that bean makes an appearance or not. What I love about Yurgachev was as I was being introduced to third wave coffee and getting used to the these tastes that that's a little bit different from the coffee I was used to growing up in New York. 
what I love about Yurgachev in, in particular is that it really has a feeling that reminds me of all the things I loved about second wave coffee and 90s New York coffee, mm-hmm. but with but, but with just a, a little more refined flavor and just interesting. I just enjoy a cup of Ethiopian coffee. But then when I, you know, I had a friend who was a barista who then introduced me to like Indonesian coffee that tasted like tomatoes. It was funny, Indonesian, there's some really odd flavors there. You know, like most... Tasted like tomatoes, man. Most baristas tended, I think that like the, the classic, uh, you know, chocolatey kind of Central American things are, are not highly regarded in the highbrow coffee world. I think they tend to go yeah. for floral and fruit kind of things. Um, but that's a, I think that's a little bit of a prejudice. There's a lot of really, really nice coffees that, you know, that follow that classic kind of Central American profile how do we how do we start talking about this oh you were talking talking about about like just going to toronto like the different baristas in different cities this is really funny no well this this very much happens on our podcast we (laughs) we, we do this a lot i was gonna say i went to literally wow a few days to a year ago i was in iceland for the first time and my friend i mean I, i i'm a coffee lover too and my one of my best friends uh, my friend Doug made me almost not like coffee because he knew how much I liked it. But I liked the taste of it and I liked the caffeine. He's very much into how you guys were discussing. So we went to these high-end, you know, Icelandic coffee shops. And me being American me, I'm like, you guys have half and half. You have oat milk and just like the record skip kind of thing. Like I had no idea. Like I, I, I didn't know that was. And they're just like, well, that's not coffee. I'm like, well, excuse me. Yeah, I'm not into, <laughs> you know, yeah. It's very fascinating. Wait, very I, don't, I really don't. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, it helped me when I was trying to, like, transfer my energy from, like, eating sweets, which I love. It just helped me to get to immerse in some weird, picky-ass kind of culture, you know? And and I, I, like, went all the way in, and it did what it, it did what, you know, it was supposed to do, plus more. It just turned into, like, something almost for its own sake, a kind of a, a pursuit of expertise for its own sake. It's gone now. I think the third wave is dead. I think it's like yeah. over. And also like it's it's much harder to enjoy baris, you know, coffee yeah. shops right now. I have I have a couple of questions and I do want to say that while I never like if people enjoy things, I thoroughly believe in in empathetic joy, but also like if Marcus asks for like an oat milk latte, I never judge people because like I'm not really into gatekeeping, and you know that that sort of thing keeps people sometimes from from enjoying things. And how I don't like people to judge me for like the movies I like or liking an Adam Sandler movie too much. You know, if someone wants, you know, I had a friend who comes from an Italian American upbringing, and we went to a non-Italian place and he asked for a lemon wedge with his espresso and the barista talked to him like he was an idiot (laughs) and I was like I don't know what you're trying to do but taking away the joy out of somebody's experience because that's how they grew up with it is is not really that cool I've fallen off completely I mean I I put half and half in my morning coffee now, you know, it's like, it's a different kind of thing, but I don't, I don't pursue it in shops anymore. And I don't think my coffee is so awesome that it should be tasted, you know, purely. 
and you know my roommate and I you know joke about this because she like she takes like old coffee and drinks it and doesn't like to waste it and she puts her cereal in the coffee and I give her kind of a, a, a laugh at her or give her like a funny look or something but it's it's I'm I but I would look exactly like that to my old coffee uh my old coffee uh snob friends but that snobbery was just a kind of an energy that was really kind of fun and useful at the time hopefully you didn't make others suffer too much from it but right. it, it was it was a it was a trip I really enjoyed it I'm sorry it's gone <laughs> and uh so just a couple things yeah I drink my coffee black that's how I've always really liked it once I'm an oat milk guy. Thankfully, I'm, I've become very dairy. Just doesn't agree with me the older I get. So uh, I haven't. Had, I haven't had half and half since 2018. It's mm. all about oat milk, almond milk, or black. Um, so I and and I, I actually appreciate it more. Half and half. It just made it. It was almost like I don't know. It, yeah, I I could see what people say. Like, well, that's not coffee. I I, I kind of get it now. Like yeah, uh, but it's just like away from... I don't know. I just I. The hills to die on these days, you know. I much <laughs> yeah, rather, sure. yeah. I much rather die on like the hill of like, you know, systemic racism or like oppression or, you know, not so much coffee. Though <laughs> coffee is coffee is super political because there's definitely it is. like oh it is like people like you really should look into where you're getting your beans from and making sure the workers are being treated well because. Not all coffee is created equal, and fair trade does not necessarily mean what you think it means. But anyways, which is of course I, I gotta I, say, you know, it's funny I, you say that because, like, going back to movies for a second, like Claire Denis' White Material. Not that no one has, but so often, no, rarely does anyone write, talk, podcast, whatever about the coffee aspect of White Material. It's always just like, oh, this family-owned coffee plantation, and that's it. And it's just like that alone is very deep for this like European exactly. white family to own a coffee plantation in Africa. And that's always grazed over, kind of. I, I, I've i probably done it myself in, in, in my yeah. own film writing. I feel like that's yeah, kind anyway. of part of the movie, though, isn't it? It, it, it is. Totally it is. You, you would think so. You, you would no, think I mean, so. I think it is. I, I have a it feeling is. that's sort of part of, the, part of acknowledged as a, as a kind of a colonial thing in the film. I, yeah. I, it's a long time since I've seen it. Well, sure. it's, it's excellent. Um, so something we always ask, guests when we remember um have you ever been a break dancer who's your favorite rapper and who's your favorite wrestler well i i have a lot more experience with one of those things than with the others because uh, my father was a wrestling coach and i wrestled in junior high but maybe that's, oh, no way but maybe that's a different kind of wrestling than you're thinking of like i don't you know can that. choose whichever answer you, 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 you can choose whichever you want and sometimes there's a venn diagram crossover of like yeah. like a you know you have a kurt angle who who was a legit uh wrestler and then went into professional wrestling i mean what, what we're talking more about the entertaining side but like i said i guess you the know. most spectacular wrestler i ever knew i mean i grew up in pennsylvania which was a big wrestling state and i followed yeah, it is so like fox catcher yeah, like Foxcatcher. Uh, uh, the guy that I was going to name as the wrestler that comes to mind first is a, a fellow named Wade Chalice, who uh, who uh, um, was from uh, Western Pennsylvania and eventually wound up at Penn State, became a coach there. I can't remember what college he went to. I, I, I saw I saw the match that uh, that made him famous, and he never kind of stopped being a celebrity in that world. But there was something kind of spectacular about and magical about watching that guy 
my brother uh, actually wrestled uh, with him uh, on a team with him, or, or you know, knew him, and says he was uh, kind of cocky about his uh, his abilities and not always pleasant about it. But uh, but uh, from the stands, he's the one that comes to mind. I never break da- break dance broke danced break danced in my life. I don't know anything about it, and I'm not a big rap fan. Let me think. My friend is really into my friend Arette Frost, who who some of you probably know from Twitter, um, introduced me to some some rappers that I that I liked better than others. I think it was Young Thug that I kind of found kind of appe- appealing. Oh, I like Scott, Young Scott, Thug. Marcus say, Scott, does Scott not like Young that. Thug. Say that again. I like <laughs> Young Thug. Marcus does not like Young Thug. Yeah. I was going to say, Scott, you, you, you could take that one. I don't know if you And it might be also Future was one of the ones that he liked that I thought was interesting. He made me a, he made me a, a, a tape once or, or a, a collection. Wow. He's young, someone who young recently... Young and oh, Future are similar they like are. Veins. Similar lanes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Both Atlanta, Gargle Tune, Psychedelic Bombast that I really like. And Marcus doesn't. Marcus prefers like dolphin sounds over drum breaks. That all right? You're confused. No, I don't. Uh, no, uh, I rest don't. in rest in peace, MF Doom. I absolutely rest in peace, MF Doom. I was gonna say though, but Future. It was funny. A more experimental hip hop artist who I would never associate with Future. I read in, a, in an interview years ago. He was up on Future for a long time, and he was like, "Just listen to his lyrics." Because Future, Future is very much a meme. Like the he, he's memed as like the toxic man kind of person but this this rapper elucid uh from queen slash long island in this interview from years ago he was like listen to future's lyrics and he's just like they're essentially cries for help for the most part and then i did and i was like oh i guess you're kind of right i guess it makes it you know it, 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 it's interesting i just I, I i also kind of bite my tongue because i think it's snobbery to a lot of the criticism towards rappers like young thug and future i want nothing to do with those criticisms but I also don't like him for those reasons, but I, I, I shy <laughs> away. But at the same time, I just prefer enunciation and pronunciation in, 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 in my rappers. But at the same time, I appreciate that style very much because it's not, like I mean, because like, like, look at scat, because look, look at scatting, which obviously predates hip hop as a mm-hmm. culture. That was treated a certain way, and and this is kind of in the same vein. So it's like I'm saying you like you ODB know. who has trouble with pronunciation and enunciation. Sure, but I still know what words he's. I, I can still quote most of his songs, whereas the the, the, the aforementioned rappers, I, I I genuinely can't. With so all, I, I think there is a there, 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 there's kind of a difference to me at least. With all pop music that I like, uh, I, I I tend to be more into the music than the lyrics. I don't always even mm. know the lyrics of my favorite songs. Sometimes mm-hmm. once in a while it happens. Fair. Fair. So that that's uh, that tends to affect my opinions across the board. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I, it's funny, maybe a decade or twenty years later, I'll be listening to a song and I'll sing along or I'll rap along to the words, and it was just like I've never attempted this before in my life, and I know every word. Mm-hmm. But when I was in the throes of it, like I said, you know, ten, twenty years ago, I just loved the beat or I loved the overall feeling, mm-hmm. and it must have been ingrained in my head so much that just automatically now from listening to these songs for so long, I just know. It's almost phonetically. Uh-huh. I'm like rapping or singing along, but I don't even know what's being said. I just kind of know it because I listen to these songs so many times. That's cool when so, that happens. Yeah. Are you working on anything now? 
I'm trying to. I'm working on something that is like theoretically this dream project that I came up with 20 years ago and I never wrote it up. I just did a long treatment because it's a little too big for me to self-finance and I've always self-financed everything. And some people last year when I was in Chile, some French filmmakers talked to me about maybe trying to help me get French government funds to, to make a movie, which I, I've never, you know, never had anything from from anybody. And uh, so I, I, I suggested this script to them and now I have to actually write it. And it's been a little hard hmm. because I don't think I actually believe that it's gonna get made. Like I'm, I'm going outside the zone of, the, the narrow zone of, of like, the, what made it possible for me to make movies in the first place when I don't have the right personality for it in many ways. I'm going right. outside that zone into this zone where I don't really believe it somehow. Not believing that I'm going to be able to make this film makes it harder to, for me to get motivated, I guess. But it's a, it, I'm, I'm writing a script about it, which is kind of different from a lot of what I've done. It's about this like old dude, this 70 year old business guy who uh, at the beginning of the film has, uh, has terminal cancer. And he's miserable and he's making his wife miserable. He's selling the business that he's on with this this other guy. And, and he's, you know, going to these doctor's appointments. And find, early on in the film, he finds out that mysteriously it's gone into remission. And it's, it doesn't seem to be there anymore. And he's mm. got his life back. But he, and he has, like, philosophy thrust upon him. And he's not a philosophical guy. And he's not an articulate guy. And he, he it's like doesn't know what to do with this like feeling of, of contemplation that has been forced upon him and his friend, his co you know, the guy who rents business with him will let him back in and he's just like, No, I, I don't wanna really do that. He tries to his wife leaves him when and he understands. He tries wow. to reconcile with his children, they won't have any of it. He understands. Finally, he decides the only thing that seems like something worthwhile for him to do is maybe to like try to go to medical school at age huh. seven, at age seventy or whatever. Wow. And he can't get in. That's a long time. Yeah. Do you want us to take this out of the? Nah. Just because it's an idea that hasn't been. You, someone, you never know. If someone wants know. to steal it, I would like to see what they do with it. <laughs> oh, um, okay. All right. I'll do it anyway. I don't. I mean, you know. They, they, sure. Oh well. Good. 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 Okay. I'm not. I, 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 if I were like doing this to try to find some hot commercial angle that no one's thought of, I, I would you know, be a different, have a different career. Sure. Anyway, so that's what that film's about. This, guy, this guy actually, you know, goes off to some place in some other country because he can't get into the usual medical schools. And winds up in Mexico or in you know the Caribbean somewhere and. And uh, at the end of the film, he's working in some crap clinic in uh, Brooklyn somewhere, maybe, and he's starting to have a little trouble getting around. And he, uh, and he meets somebody who has the same disease that he had and mm -hmm. breaks down at first and then, and then connects with the guy for the first time in the movie and says to him, listen, I had this, I had this disease. I had the same thing as you. I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got rid of it, but I've been thinking about it a lot. Let's get back into oncology. And that's the end of the movie. So I oh. told you the whole thing. You don't have to see it now. No, I definitely I'm need to see it. I'm still going to see it. I'm going to see any movie you make. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and what's funny is even though maybe you don't listen to a lot of rap, um, 
two two like very powerful rap lyrics I thought about while watching 14. One is by Nas, where he says, you know, a thug changes, love changes, best friends become strangers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Mac Miller, who, who passed away a couple of years ago, said, it's a dark science when your friends start dying. So mm. these are just things that I've been thinking about in this, you know, delicately heartbreaking film 14. But that that's not your only movie. You've been making movies for a while. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, your history as a filmmaker before yeah, I mean, we uh, start to wind down? I went to film school when I was like 21. And uh, I, that time I thought I could, you know, have a, an industry career which I don't know what made me think that but I just didn't know myself well enough and it was not for a couple of years that I realized it just was not gonna happen I thought maybe I would sell scripts and try to get into movies that way uh, but my the cinema that I liked was changing around me you know after 1976 they rewrote the tax shelter laws and the commercial uh, industry was like shifting gears you know giving birth to to the big blockbuster hits that defined the seventies later on, you know? Um, so I didn't get a chance to make a movie until John Doerr, a really good filmmaker and good film critic was running easy TV in Los Angeles, a video place and offered to let me use the equipment. So I just made a film on this really bad three quarter inch video with bad sound, bad image. Um, but it was a script, which is like the most Hollywoodish script I've ever done it was the only time I made a movie where my original like dedication to classical Hollywood actually came through in the in the in the movie and that was like finished in 86 and like four had four screenings and that was that and I you know wasn't sure if anyone would see it again but that was you know I just got started on self-financing that way and then I after I moved to New York I you know worked my way up in the computer industry to the point where I was able to save a little bit of money, which was my like strategy for, for you know, for a filmmaking career. I thought to myself, I I better start making more money if I wanted to self finance, and I switched mm. over to a computer life, and I made it stick somehow. So when I got to New York, I made like my first film on sixteen millimeter, which was Honeymoon, that was shot in seventy six and done in seventy eight, and then video was coming in, and the third film I did was on, you know. On video, that didn't really doesn't look that great today. But the, the film was like a 60-minute movie called All the Ships at Sea that I shot in 2002 and came out in 2004. So those are like three movies I did that really didn't get very much attention at all. And it wasn't really until 2011, 2012, with uh, the Unspeakable Act, that I got into any you know big festivals, got any 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 attention at all a little bit of a surprise to me actually i didn't expect it yeah and great and great film by the way 14 uh i went back and revisited unspeakable act mm -hmm. um only because i don't i think the last time i had seen it might have been you know maybe a few weeks or a few months after i, I was first introduced to you by dave yeah. so we're talking maybe 2013 um mm -hmm. and i i do have to say too it's i i both, you know, Scott and I, but I'm, I'm very, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an only child, but I'm like an extreme only child. So I'm always fascinated by sibling stories. And this is obviously like an extreme 
Uh, Only children probably have more sibling fantasies than siblings do. Uh, Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, wow. It's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say. I mean, I never had a sister, and I made that movie. I mean, so that there was fantasy there. Sure. To uh, built into it. Tally's sure. is so like amazing in that role, you know. She's great. She showed up. I, I, you know, another thing about this pandemic. I was always a fan, but uh, I, I, just having all the time in the world. I watched so much Joe Para, and then I, and she was on an episode of Joe Para t- talks with you, oh. and this was after I had seen fourteen. But I had seen that episode of Joe Para that she was on, and I just remember like, oh, that's oh wow, that's Tally from uh, fourteen. Oh, that's awesome. So, I but yeah, like, she she she's great in both films. That was like you know I didn't have that role cast or in mind when I wrote it. And so Swanberg okay. recommended some people to me, and she was one mm-hmm. of them. And he hadn't worked with her, but he and Greta Gerwig had seen uh, at, I think the Sidewalk Festival he had seen uh, a movie that Tally had made uh, with her original director uh, Daniel Shainert, who mm-hmm. Shainert, who uh, she went to school with, and. Uh, they talked to her. They had an email relationship with her, and Joe recommended her to me. That was how I found her. It was real lucky. Nice. Oh. Also, shout out to Joe Swanberg. He's, he's I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of his. Me too. As an actor and and, 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 and as a filmmaker. Shout out to Joe. And Pera. as a boxer. As a boxer. As a boxer. Yeah. Who knows yeah. what I'm, talk- who know what I'm talking boxing. about? <laughs> I don't know about the boxing, but he's a he's a he's quite a good filmmaker. I think he beat the. I mean the 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 the, the critic lost. You know who we fought from, <laughs> from, from from what I know. So that's all. Yeah. I, mean. right. hey. I heard about so. that. Didn't see the match it, itself. The dire- uh, and the director it of was a clear chaos. Win. The director of chaos uh, challenged our friend Vern to a wrestling match once. The director of not not the Taviani brothers chaos. I no think. no no. This is uh, no. He he also directed um, Wrong Side of Town with Dave Batista and, and Rob Van Dam. He's like a, a DTV action director. Okay. Yeah. I'm imagining yeah. the Taviani brothers like double teaming somebody. <laughs> no, it was uh, David DeFalco who is like a, a F level wrestler. Um, mm. Made Chaos, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Oh shit! And He's gonna hear this and challenge you. Although, I think you you I think you could take him. I'm in a blue belt in jujitsu. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, which is like the the most annoying thing I've ever said in my life. Well, the yeah. Taviani brothers' chaos is really good. Yeah, no, this movie is not good at all. <laughs> I keep wanting to go back to the Taviani brothers since they came. <laughs> Might be their best movie, I think. Oh, well, that's on my cue. Mm-hmm. I have so much to, to look forward to now. You know, I feel like I've really learned a lot from this episode. I just want to make sure if there's anything else you'd like to bring up before we uh, settle down for the evening. No, I have no particular uh, agenda. Just available available for any requests. So where can people find you and where can people uh, rent your movies? Um, I think... Uh, no, the easiest way to rent most of them is to go to Grasshopper's site, which is Projector TV, projector.tv. Uh, the last vowel of projector is missing, but I'm sure you could find it. And I think most of them are there. Um, the Unspeakable Act is not, you know, is a Cinema Guild film, and I think that they've made it available. I don't know if they have it on their own website, but I think they made it available on various sites. So I don't even know where you can get it, but it's out there. The only one that really is a little hard to find is that first one, and and that's kind of a 
the advanced class. I mean, you really better be committed uh, to the a tourist project of seeing all my movies before you go there. I like it, but it's just, you know, technically very rough. So don't worry about that one for now. Save that for, save that for, you know, when you, when you get to be a, uh, uh, needed for scholarship purposes. <laughs> well, I mean, who, you know, so who knows what people like? I like that movie now. I must say, I like it. I see it again these days, and I like it better than I uh, used to at the time. Either. Yeah, what's your favorite movie of yours? That's something we never ask directors because it's a weird ass question. Yeah, it's a. It, it, who could say? <laughs> I mean, what does my opinion even matter? I'm too close to all of them. Um, I think maybe it would be fourteen. I think maybe it would be fourteen. Either. I mean, I loved. I loved fourteen. Um, all, it was yeah, my favorite same. movie of 2020. So. Even the the unspeakable act, which I which is a, a film that, that meant a lot to me. I for a long time I made these movies that were a little, the subject matter put people off. You know, the honeymoon was a very difficult film to watch by any standards, but it was a film about a, you know, a, an impulse marriage that that almost dissolves in you know, marital fights and impotence and everything. It was really kind of a little uncomfortable. And unspeakable act is you know ostensibly that incest although you know i don't think it's terribly uh you know it's not as bad as it sounds for people so i, I had all these films that uh, seemed a little edgy so i think people were pleased when 14 came out and there was nothing too you know obviously uh transgressive going on just like just like loss <laughs> 14's a hard film to watch if you're in the right mood, I think. It's just like... It's it was good. hard for me. It's desolate. It's desolate. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult film, but it's just done in such a non-sanctimonious way that you're sort of able to just vibe with it. Yeah, I'm glad. Sure. It, seems so, it seems that it, more people have been able to approach this than, than some of the other ones. I don't know. I really don't know which one I like best. But 14 kind of works for me now. I made a short film after it, and Katerina, and I think it works pretty well. But I, because I, I'm more of a feature person than a short film person, and because I was stepping out of my comfort zone, mm -hmm. I would hesitate to, like, say, you know, to point at that one. But that was an interesting film with Agustina Munoz, the Argentine actress who's, who I wrote it for, who I did it with. You know, we collaborated kind of on it, and she was really wonderful. In it. Awesome. That too, well, I think, yeah. is on the projector.tv site. Well, you know, thank you so much for being on. You're welcome. Yeah, Dan, this was awesome. You're welcome back anytime. This is really cool. Just, just, just say the word. Awesome, man. Thank you. And, I, and I, again, I have to, if you want to follow uh, Scott Tafoya on Twitter, because he's essentially the guy who I, I contacted first to make sure it was cool to reach out to. Uh, but uh, yeah, For, uh, at Honor Zombie, he, he's, a, he's another great, like, he's a filmmaker himself. He's a film critic. He, he just, he, he loves cinema uh, himself. He's, he's made he's a so great many movies. Twitter. Yeah. I, he's, uh, I, I have no count of how many movies he's made, but he just made zillions <laughs> of them. Yeah. I wish I were like that, but I'm slow. <laughs> we are who we are. Yeah, okay. we are who we are. You're lucky to be able to make any films at all, really. Sure. You know, you know, uh, 
are you, are you Jewish, Dan? No, I'm not. Arabic, as a matter of fact, of Syrian ancestry. Okay. Well, uh, you know, in 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 my in the Jewish tradition, there's a song we sing at Passover, and while Passover is a holiday that I have a lot of troubles with, I like the song. It's called Dainu, which just means it would have been enough. So it's like if you would have just done this for us, O Lord, it would have been enough. If you would have just done this, it would have been enough. But you did this and this and this. So if a director, an artist, a writer, whatever, makes one piece of art, yeah. that would be enough. And I didn't have the right personality to be a filmmaker. And for a long time, I thought I was not going to be able to make a film because I just miscalculated so badly in choosing this career that I was not going to be able to handle. And the fact that I found a way to make any films whatsoever is a pretty lucky break. So I'm, I'm down with this, uh, this song that you're talking about. Exactly, because anything else is just gravy. Yeah. So when people complain like, "Oh, the second one wasn't as good," or like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, but we're so lucky that we get to enjoy art anyway, and and every creative thing that's good is a gift and a blessing, and anything else it's just like, you know, I don't like saying like privilege stuff too much, but it's like check your privilege. We get to enjoy art, like. I watched a movie that I loved a couple of weeks ago, and then we got to talk about it with the director. What about, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is a beautiful life. Yeah, I really feel about my filmmaking life, like, so content that I was able to to, to do anything and then get a little attention for it. I, I got exactly what I kind of hoped I would get in a way, and it seems so unlikely given my personality. The Freudian in me coming out again for a final you know, bow, but the, I think that you're like you're up against your unconscious and you don't know it at first. You don't know what you're what you're fighting with, and I feel really lucky not to have like lost every round of that fight. With that, good night. <laughs> good night. Thank you. Awesome. Flower head.